I've been lucky enough to witness my share of NASA launches. And I have to say, the thrill never wears off. But September 15th was kind of special. I got to be in the control room at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California for the launch of NASA's ISAT-2 satellite. The vibe in the control room is completely different than when you watch a launch from a public viewing area. It's all business. At liftoff, the crowd outside is watching the rocket launch, and they cheer, and it goes off, and there's all this smoke and fire. But for the people in here, the job doesn't end when the rocket launches. They're monitoring everything. They're seeing whether the rockets are firing right, whether the engines have the right thrust. It's quiet, intense, focused. SYS, established launch sequence and engine start, record on change list, activated. You know, that was my first time in a control room. I'd been to a couple of other launches at Kennedy and, you know, always been impressed by the rocket far away and how amazing it looks. But being in the control center was special for me. Growing up in the Apollo era, I'd always seen that room where everybody's like, you know, fuels, go, you know, and they go down the whole line. go. And I always wanted to be there. But I have to say that I was surprised at some of the checks. The one in particular that still stands out is umbilical lubricant check. That's a guy named Tom Wagner. During launch, Tom was sitting right next to me. Ten years you've been waiting for this? <laughs> Tom had every right to be nervous. He'd been working towards this day for more than ten years. From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fowler. Go on September 15, 2018, a Delta II rocket lifted ISAT-2 into orbit. The satellite carries what just might be the most sophisticated space laser ever built. Now, NASA didn't put it up there to shoot down marauding Klingons or rogue asteroids. It's up there to shine a light, a very precise, focused light, back at Earth. A single photon of laser light. Tom Wagner, officially, is NASA's program scientist for the cryosphere. That means he studies the frozen regions of the Earth, places critical to understanding our planet's changing climate, Antarctica, the Arctic Ocean, the glaciers of Greenland. What's really funny is that at the start of it, when I was a geology major back in college, if you had told me I would work on glaciers, I would have said, absolutely not. But you know, it was back in the 80s, and you know, people were just starting to talk about climate change. Nobody really knew what it meant. And doing glaciology meant you were out in the western U.S. mapping glacial moraines from, you know, 20,000 years ago and even older when the ice sheets came down from Canada. But for me personally, I wanted to work on something that was more dynamic. And so I originally started working on volcanoes. And uh, volcanoes actually, Volcanoes are more exciting than glacial moraines? Tell well, me it isn't true. <laughs> yeah, this, there was, what I was excited about it was, you know, there was a threat so you could potentially help mitigate threats to humanity. Um, and they were just dynamic. And I was making magma in the lab, in fact. Anyhow, you know, fast forward 20, 30 years, and Earth's climate's changing. Now, all of a sudden, glaciology is super important again because we know the ice sheets are changing. And we know there are real implications through sea level rise and also just changing the Earth as a system with the sea ice. Back from the launch, Tom and I sat down together at NASA headquarters. We got a chance to really geek out about all the incredible new capabilities of ISAT-2, but we also talked about more serious topics, like what it promises to teach us about our home planet and about how Earth's climate will change in the years to come. 
So ice that too is optimized to study the Earth's polar regions. The land ice, which is the big ice of Greenland and Antarctica, which causes sea level rise. As that ice flows into the ocean or melts, it's raising sea level. Right now around the world, sea level's rising by over three millimeters a year. Over half of that comes from polar ice. It's also optimized to study the sea ice. And you think the top of the planet, the Arctic Ocean, is covered by ice in the winter. That ice has been changing quite a bit. We know a lot about the ice in map view, the extent of the ice, but we don't know a lot about the ice thickness. That is very, very hard to measure. But by some estimates, we've lost about 80% of the ice that used to be there back in the 80s. Since the 80s? Since It's been changing since the 80s. Wow. And it used to be that that ice was maybe like 15, 20 feet thick. And now it's down to like three to five feet thick in most places. The precision of the lasers on ISATU is pretty incredible. And it really has to be. It's going to be measuring small changes in the ice from over 300 miles up in space. I asked Tom exactly how this works. So ISAT-2 is a satellite. It's in a near polar orbit. And it shoots a laser, actually, in its six separate beams that bounce off the surface of the Earth from the satellite and come back and get caught in a telescope. Right? The other lidars were laser ranging measurements that we've flown before. What they do is you can think of it almost like a big pulse, like if you turned on your flashlight as fast as you could once, right? And had that light bounce off a mirror and then catch it on the return. But what's amazing about ISAT 2 is it does a single photon of that laser light. And that's really different. Instead of doing the whole illuminated beam, it's just going to be the tiniest subset of that light that you can imagine. So it seems to me like you'd have to have a pretty powerful laser to be able to take this measurement. It's 300 miles above the Earth. It's mm. careening through space. You know, it orbits once every 90 minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, tell me a bit about this laser. What, what went into building such a thing? This was a radical departure for us because traditionally, you know, most LIDARs had used more powerful lasers and they were an analog system, right? You blast out a lot of photons and then you get back a whole signal from that, you know, millions of photons you're measuring in the return. This is a very, very low-energy laser compared to that. Do you think there's going to be like an uptick in like UFO sightings or something? I mean, we've got this thing. You, this, you can actually see it. It's actually flashing a green flash right. from space. And for the original ISAT, which was a more powerful laser, I've talked to people that were on the ground in the right spot at the right time, and they talk about everything lighting up green around them. They were in the cone. You know, it was 60 meters wide in that case, the footprint. You might be able to see something like that if you were in a really, really dark location and in the right spot. So it goes without saying that this laser is safe, right? I mean, I mean, it's not going not gonna to melt the ice that you're trying to study, for example. <laughs> that was one of the things we dove into right away. It's not going to melt the ice. It's very, very low energy. The amount of sunlight that hits is much more powerful. And if you're on the ground, even if you look directly at it, even through a binocular or anything like that, you'll be fine. And the laser fires how many times a second? 10,000 times a second. Yikes. And if you think of this thing as passing over a football field, it's like a laser footprint hitting the ground more than every yard line. And then, then, then after a trillion photons go down and bounce, scatter off the Earth, maybe one <laughs> right. gets back. And I have a tough time believing that this will work. But, you know, I've seen the data and it does. But... You have those trillions of photons. They're getting absorbed by clouds. They're getting absorbed by trees. And then they hit the ground and they have to come back on the right path. And so what's interesting about this is that it's a real statistical process-based mission. You're going to shoot a lot of, you're going to make a lot of measurements. And because you're making so many measurements, you see the surfaces you want to see. Namely, the, the surface of the ice 
or the ground underneath the forest. And how accurate are we talking about? How, how accurately can you measure the height of something? For some of the very straightforward measurements, like, for example, sea ice, we're going to be measuring that down at the couple of centimeter level. Wow. Over the ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica, we're talking about measuring things to like half the width of a pencil. In some ways, the changes that you're talking about seem like they might be kind of small. Like you talked about sea rise being, what, like, like seven millimeters a year? 3.3 millimeters a year around the globe. So... Why is this significant? So you have to put this into the context of time. Like the 3.3 millimeters doesn't sound like a lot. But in places like New York, you know, where people have lived for hundreds of years and lived down by the water, it's risen by about a foot just in the modern era. And that's one of the reasons that flooding from tides has become more important. But then when you have a storm, that storm run-up is even further. So even though it's small doesn't, and it doesn't seem like a big deal, the implications are huge. Now, when we talk about measuring the ice over Greenland and Antarctica to the width of half a pencil or something, that doesn't really fully represent the magnitude of the changes there. There are places where the coastal glaciers, because so much ice has flowed out into the oceans, the surface of the ice has dropped by 30, 40, 50, 100 feet in some areas. If you go to the glaciers of Alaska, which we're also going to cover pretty well because they're polar, They have lost so much ice, and it used to be that warm water was lapping up against them, causing them to calve, that they've now retreated up onto land, and the ocean isn't causing them to lose ice anymore. They're just flat out melting from the top down. And so the magnitude of some of these changes are huge. But to get at the processes that control them, we need to make these measurements with very, very high precision. But I don't want anyone to walk away and think, hey, okay, so it sounds like they're talking about minor changes at the polar regions. No, these changes are extraordinary. You know, if you look at the sea ice, we have lost all of the old ice. You know, it used to be like the Navy had to figure out where submarines could come up because the ice was too thick. Now the ice is pretty much thin everywhere, you know, Um, and we're trying to look at the last remnants of ice that is thick to try to understand the ice into the future. Also, we're changing the Earth's gravitational field. And since water responds to that change, as we lose mass from the poles, we change how water is redistributed around the planet. And one of the things we include in our projections is, whoa, we lose ice from Greenland. How does that affect things like the East Coast of the U.S.? Where's the water go? Right. It's going to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will ask me, they'll be like, well, is climate change really happening? And I say, okay, look... Go to a city like Miami. It is already flooding regularly. New York City has areas that are flooding regularly. My best friend growing up, he still lives on Long Island. I went to his house. While we were there, it was a big tide. The street in front of his house flooded. It's already here and going on. So certainly one of the things about ISAT too is, you know, you're going to be extending the record of how the ice has been changing. Want to take us a bit through the history of that? Fascinating, because if you really dive into it, the first laser ranging measurements that we made over the ice started in the 80s at NASA with some measurements made by aircraft over the Arctic sea ice. But really, the story then jumps, takes until the 90s when we started flying the Arctic, the sea ice, but also Greenland quite a bit. Those measurements gave us a few ideas that, hey, we may be really losing ice from Greenland, which nobody really knew at the time. But 2003, we launched the original ISAT. ISAT operates from 2003 to 2009, and that is a single beam laser altimeter. 
If you look at the maps created by that of how much ice is lost around the periphery of Greenland and Antarctica, it's tremendous. I mean, there are places where you're losing like, you know, 30 feet in the thickness of ice a year. It's hard to put yourself back in the mind frame of when ISAT launched. I mean, and this is not that long ago, right? We're talking less than 20 years ago, but we did not know that the ice sheets were losing ice. In fact, we thought they were kind of in balance in a lot of ways. And it was only through ISAT and then satellites like GRACE, which showed we were also losing mass, and then some of the radar satellites that show us how fast the ice is moving, that we were able to say, wow, these things, even though they seem like they're in the coldest parts of the planet and shouldn't be changing, they're changing quite a bit. By making those very, very precise laser measurements with small footprints, we're able to see things that nobody had ever seen before. There are areas where all of a sudden in the middle of the Antarctic ice sheet, it would pop up and then it would go down. And it's because as we discovered, water was moving underneath the ice. ISAT ends in 2009. ISAT 2 was in development. It looked like it was going to be a little more complicated. The original theory was, hey, well, let's do a single beam similar to what we did with the original ISAT. They said, well, there's this new photon counting stuff that looks like it's inexpensive. Maybe we could add that as like an outrigger on top of that. And then the more we talked, we said, you know, if we're really going to do that and it's going to work, do we really need the big heavy laser in the middle? And then you start costing it all out and, you know, more mass, more power, bigger spacecraft, bigger rocket, more energy needed, bigger solar panels. So you start to go, hey, this photon counting stuff, it's going to use a low power laser. Huh? So we can make everything smaller. And you know what? These low-power lasers, they last longer than the high-powered lasers. So a lot of things came together early on where we wound up with this six-beam photon counting system that was really exciting to see and see the science mature along with it. ISAT-2 also extends NASA's Ice Bridge mission, the subject of the Holy Sheet episode of Orbital Path. For almost a decade, IceBridge has used vintage Navy planes to laser map the polar regions. The new ISAT-2 satellite is state-of-the-art. To determine exactly where it is in space, the satellite actually uses a seventh laser beam, and a technique that may sound a bit old school. That seventh beam gets shot off onto a map. That map is of the stars that are over the satellite at that moment. And by looking where the laser beam comes into that map relative to the stars, we can very, very precisely figure out the orientation of the instrument. And I just find that mind-boggling. The funny thing is this, though. All the people who work on the project who have been doing this since ISAT, they kind of go, everybody knows about Star Trackers and Wagner. (laughs) Always like, are you kidding me? I can't believe this works, let alone we need it. Just the whole idea of knowing where, where anything is in space, right? I mean, I mean, I think most people aren't, aren't don't really know that we use star trackers. Like we send Cassini out to Saturn. Well, how right. do we know where it is? We're taking pictures of the stars very far away from Saturn, and you know because they don't move very much. <laughs> I know, and it feels so old school to me. It's yeah. almost like navigators of old on the high seas with their sextants. So the whole point of building this next satellite, I mean, of course, you know, you know, the one point is to have a data record that continues, that we understand how the ice is changing in the many years to come, hopefully, that ISAT-2 will be taking data. But the other thing is we're making a much better measurement, a more accurate measurement than we have before. Yeah, and it's it depends on how you quantify it, but it's like an order of magnitude better. You know, getting back to the football field analogy, 
ISAT would have put one beam footprint in each end zone of the field. ISAT 2 is going to measure every yard line. We are going to get such an amazing new picture of the ice and of the planet on the whole. We're not just doing the polar regions, right? The satellite is on when it's going over the entire globe. So we're going to be mapping things like the heights of rivers and lakes, which nobody has ever really done before in a systematic way. We're also going to be measuring the height of the world's forests. And that's really important as we try to understand the Earth's carbon cycle, you know, fossil fuels to CO2 in the atmosphere and then out to plants. We don't know how much carbon is tied up in the Earth's biomass, the forests, and ISAT-2 is going to help us do that. We also want to understand how the sea ice is connected to the global system. And it's both influenced by and also influences it. As we've lost the Arctic sea ice cap, we think that it's influencing North America right now. It's changing the jet stream and potentially changing storm tracks. But at the same time, as the planet has warmed up and the polar regions are warming faster than the rest of the planet, we know we're losing this ice. We're losing it in extent, but we're also losing in thickness. And the thickness one is what we're gonna document so much better with ISAT-2 than we ever had before. You were talking about that since the 1980s, you know, we've, we've actually seen about an 80% decline in the amount of sea ice, the mass of the sea ice there. Greenland alone, for like the last 10 years, has been losing about 200 billion tons of mass. Yeah, we measure it in e each gigatons. Year. That's, That's incredible. So one thing to consider, though, right, is that we also need to know the flux. That is, how much comes in and how much goes out. Let's take the Antarctica case for a minute, right? There are, if you took all the oceans around the world, just picture them in your head, now take seven millimeters, right, off the top. That's how much snow falls on Antarctica every year. Hmm. Okay, even though it's, you know, it's still considered a polar desert and things, it's a tremendous amount. Now, that as the, you can think of the ice sheets like if you were pouring honey onto a table, right? The honey builds up in the middle and then flows out to the sides. Snow builds up in the center of the ice and then it flows out to the sides. Now we want to get at the processes controlling it because that's the only way we can really do forecasts. So one of the things we find is that uh, coastal areas are losing a lot, we think driven by the ocean. Interior areas may be gaining a little bit. But with ISAT too, I think we're going to be able to pull it all together. and We're going to see very, very precisely where change is occurring. And that'll let us do a better job with our forecast. It's just, it's a wonderful story of how you design, you know, like the best laser ever built, basically, you know, and you've got, you've got this really interesting new technology. There's all kinds of wonderful things like the accuracy in the Star Tracker. But then what's coming out of it is I'm, we're going to try to understand how our planet is changing. Well, you, you can think of the Earth like a giant machine and the parts are all connected to each other and work together. We need to know how the atmosphere works, how much snow that's bringing to the ice, how much wind there is that's blowing the sea ice around. We need to send the ocean how much heat it's bringing to the ice sheet and causing it to calve. And with a mission like ISAT, we think we can pull those things together so we can do a better job forecasting the changes. And the fact is you need satellites to do it because if you want to understand how the Earth is connected, you need to make measurements all over the place, but you need to make them very, very precisely. And this is where a satellite is perfect. It's up there in the environment of space. It lasts for a long time. It covers the whole planet and you go over and over again, making the same measurement everywhere. And that's what really allows us to pull it all together to get this picture of the Earth that lets us understand how it is today, but also how it's going to change tomorrow. 
And then finally, too, and, and this is, it's dismal but exciting at the same time. As we lose ice from the Arctic Ocean, we are essentially seeing the spin-up of a new ocean for the planet. The Arctic Ocean right now is highly stratified, and the ice forms a platform for a lot of creatures to live. As we remove that ice, now winds can stir the ocean so it's no longer so stratified. And the species that live there change. A lot of the species that live in the Earth's polar regions are very, very long-lived. And consequently, they're very nutritious. They build up a lot of fatty acids and things. So whales come through and eat certain kinds of plankton. Well, what's happening is shorter-lived species from the Pacific are now able to live in the Arctic. And it's more like popcorn, you know, than a healthy meal. So, to me, it's fascinating as a scientist to see what the changes in the ice, the changes in the ocean. Like you mentioned, even, even the chemistry of the ocean, because the layers are getting mixed up. You have different species that are moving in. It's a fascinating scientific problem, huge amounts of data to be taken. It, it, it also kind of is scary. Yeah, and <laughs> I think a lot, I mean, I have children, you know, and I think yeah. a lot about the future and what their future is going to be like. One of the things that I'm hopeful for is that by doing this kind of research, we can put bounds around the problem and help humanity better mitigate the changes that are going to come. But what people also have to realize is the change is already here. Sea level's already rising and has risen, and we're getting coastal flooding even around the U.S. Well, my hope is that with measurements from things like ISAP, we're going to be able to do a better job with projections and help humanity better prepare for what's coming. Tom Wagner, he's NASA's program scientist studying the cryosphere, the coldest parts of the Earth. So let's go back to that moment of the launch. There are crowds cheering outside, in mission control, everybody is busy with the business of the rocket monitoring everything. And I'm sitting next to Tom Wagner. And I have to say, Tom Wagner is a hero of mine. This is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He's not getting rich working at NASA. He's doing something that's his passion, studying the ice, studying the way the Earth is changing. And there's a combination of emotions as we watch this rocket lift off. There is the incredible triumph of building the world's greatest space laser, you know, sending it up on this amazing rocket. There's all the technology, there's all the science data. And then there's this little bit of a catch in your throat when you think about what it's going to reveal and the fact that it's revealing that our planet is changing very quickly. And honestly, we don't even understand what those changes are going to be yet. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Orbital Path is produced by David Schulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler playing laser tag back at PRX. I'm Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.